Good morning. I bring you greetings from Kitchy Pines Church, which is not in the middle of nowhere, but it's probably closer than we think and farther than you think. Um, as a son of a pastor, I've watched my father go to various places and give a series of messages. And um, I have never been here before, but I know when my father came back, he was much encouraged. Um, he came home with more energy than when he left. And I think that speaks of the, the Spirit of God and the presence here. But it also makes me feel a little nervous to stand here. Um, yes, I was ordained about a month ago. And uh, so the Lord is still doing, as I'm sure even Leon would say, after many years, the Lord is still working in our hearts. We're no different than anyone else. And so I pray that as I share what the Lord has spoke to me, it'll hopefully be a blessing to you and that you wouldn't see me or my stumbles or foibles, but you might gain a greater picture of Christ in your own hearts. You know, Charles Spurgeon said in one of his last messages, he said, if you could only see my commander-in-chief, you would not hesitate to enlist in his army. You know, in this time of the year, we and, and so much of the uh, American society and even some societies around the world remember the Lord's birth, but most of the world has forgotten it or watered it down into what they observe as Christmas. And um, my mind was drawn to this and saying, How, can we see Jesus? Do we see Jesus through all of these things? So oftentimes our picture of who Christ is becomes clouded by the imperfect reflections we see of him around us. And it's easy for us to, to lose sight of the picture of who Christ really is. And so this morning I'd like to draw a picture, draw five, or excuse me, um, six different snapshots of Christ in the Bible um, to remind us of who this babe in the manger really is. To remind us of, you know, of that Jesus is not still just a baby in the manger, but he is oh so much more than that today. And in each one of these will be worth several hours of study just by themselves, and so I'm only going to um, skim over them and get the highlights. But I was reminded, even in my own study, that I have so much to learn and so much to see of who Jesus really is in my own personal life, um, that I have so much of self, of Japheth, that needs to get out of the way in order to see Christ for who he really is. The first place I'd like to turn to is in Genesis, chapter 1. We just got back from the Creation Museum, spent a day and a half there. And you can't get through that place without being uh, impressed in your spirit about the importance of Christ, of Jesus as our creator. You know, in Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, He is the image, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, over all creation, for by Him... All things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. 
I'd like you to kind of get this picture and just try and wrap, wrap your mind about this. About We have a God that is so big and so powerful. And, he, and he's looking over this faceless, uh, featureless expanse. And as he looks over this, he has in his mind, he has a plan for what he wants to do. And Christ is there, and it was by him. And by his words, he is able to speak into existence all the stars and everything that we see around us. Now, I don't know how many of you are carpenters or what your occupations are, but if we want to make something, there's a lot of effort required on our part. I can't just go out and speak and say... You know, I fix and sell sewing machines and vacuum cleaners, and I can't look at this troublesome sewing machine and say, work. It doesn't work. And in fact, what I end up doing sometimes is praying, God, God, you made the universe. You know what makes a sewing machine tick. Help me figure this out so that we can, we can make it work again. God's not like that. He has so much power that he can just speak it out, and the, the, the stars go right to their places. The moon start or, start orbiting, um, and he and it's his speak. Now, from his word, the power of the sun just comes into being. And you look at the power that we have, the the whole life that is generated just from the power of sun in this world today. That life came from God's own voice. He didn't just scatter the s- stars. Oh, I got a handful of stars and just scatter them out into space. But he put them exactly where he wanted them. You know, I've tried decorating cakes, and you know, there's a reason why I don't do that anymore. And I just try to try and sprinkle stuff over them, and it it looks like someone didn't know what they were doing because I didn't. God knew what He was doing. He put them at the exact place, and He knows them. And I think He did that just to remind us of the incredible, awesome power of God. That he was out there. Can you see God taking delight? You know, as he's creating this world, he's taking delight in the trees. He, he didn't just create two different types of trees. The winter trees, the summer trees. He didn't create just trees for all the world. He created some that only grow in certain places, other ones. He took great deal of detail. And I don't know about you, but when you and I create something, if we put a lot of detail, a lot of time to it, there's personal uh, satisfaction and delight in seeing it work and seeing it fulfilled. Do you see God doing that? The plants, the flowers, and creating the, just creating the air that carries the fragrances. We got out of um, the van, and um, our family van has the family van odor. Um, some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, and we got out at Norman's last night, and I could smell the decaying leaves of fall. It took me back to my grandfather's cabin. And immediately you go and go, you know, God created the air that can simply bring us that, to remind us that God provided that air for us to breathe. Every day when he was done creating this incredible complex ecosystem, what did God end it with? And God said, it was good. It was good. He delighted in it. And then can you see him, Jesus, with his father saying, let us make man in our own image. You know, everything else, it said God spoke into existence. 
mankind was the one thing where God got his hands dirty. God got his hands dirty. It wasn't, it wasn't enough just to speak it into existence. He also, um, he got down. He said he formed man out of the dust of the earth. And he's the only one that gave us his breath and his soul to live inside of us. Do you see Jesus delighting in that? Jesus creating that. He created the seed that we are, that we are living from today. And you and I carry today the same breath of God in our, in our lives. The second picture I want to give you is the picture of Jesus Christ as the friend of man. You know, so here we have God has created this beautiful Garden of Eden. He's created man. He's breathed into him. And now he delights. He comes down in the cool of the day to walk through the garden with, with man. He, he has this relationship with man. And, and he likes to talk with man and the man and the woman and to fellowship with them. And can you see the anguish on his face when he knew that man had disobeyed him. Can, can you see that? I mean, you and I, you as, your parents, we know what it's like when we, we, we enjoy fellowshiping with our children, and when they've done something that they know is wrong, it's like there's this, there's this veil that comes between them. They don't really want to be around us because they're afraid mommy and daddy might find out. And what does that do to you as a parent's heart? There's grief there. Son, I want to know what this is. I want to, I want to be able to work through this. I want to, what's going on? Can we, can we talk this? Can you see the anguish of Jesus and God as he's walking in the coolness of the garden saying, Adam, where are you? Can you see Jesus knowing there in the garden, in God, knowing there in the garden, what was coming down the road and being willing to give his life for this rebellious creation you know, even back there, Jesus, I mean, he can see in the future, he knew what was coming, and he knew that because of this sin that was coming in, he knew what the price would be for him. Can you see that Jesus sought to shepherd his people? You know, a shepherd has a very lowly task because his whole life is given trying to protect his sheep and trying to nurture them and lead them into the ways of truth. And as you read through the Old Testament, I encourage you, we did a um, kind of a skim as a family here a while back. As you read through the Old Testament, note how God earnestly sought the heart of his people. You know, um, the relationship that he built with Abraham. And then the personal relationship we had with Moses. And the struggle we had with Moses to try and communicate his love and his law to his people. And he gave them his laws and he sought to make them pure. He said, purify yourselves because I'm going to come and speak with you at the Mount Sinai. And, he, and yet he knew all along that these laws were a schoolmaster to show them two things. To show them the holiness of God and to show them the need of a Savior. To show them the need for the personal cleansing in their own hearts. The need for, for um, a purifying of their own heart. And he took them back when they repented of their erring ways. You know, so many times God would speak to his, his people. 
You know, if God was not a caring God, if he was not a friend of mankind, how quickly do you think God would have wiped man off the face of the earth and just said, okay, done with it. I'm not going to do with that anymore. But he loved us. He cared for us. And when the children of Israel would repent, God didn't just stand back and say, you deserve this. Figure it out on your own. No, he loved us. And he cared for us in that. And he gave us the book of Hosea as an example of what he was feeling. As a, as a husband, as a father to his people, he, he, he said, don't you understand that, that my heart grieves for you, my heart aches for you. I have taken you as a bride to me. But you've turned and you've, you've pushed me away. You've rejected the love that I've given you. You've rejected the, the life that I've brought to you. And you've turned you went a-whoring after other gods. And God says, I will not share you with another. God will not share his people with other gods. Why? Why won't God do that? Why won't God take second fiddle? And I believe the reason is because he is a pure God. He will allow no sin. He will allow nothing impure to tarnish him. He, is, he cannot. He would not be God if he were to allow that. And every other God, every other thing is, is, is touched, sometimes partially, sometimes wholly, with sin. God will not allow that. And, and there's a jealousy because he has claimed us as his own. He created us. And Satan has come in to steal away what was God's. And God will not share us because there's nothing unclean or wrong in him. You know, there's no other God in the world that can say that. There's no other God in the world can, that can say he is pure, totally pure. And why? God is a holy God, and he's the only God that can say that too. So we have Jesus as the creator, Jesus as the friend of mankind who sought that relationship with us. And the third picture I'd like to show you is Jesus as a holy God. You know, this is something that is under tremendous attack in our society, and I dare say even in some of our own churches today. God is a holy God. Jesus, as our Savior, came here as a human. He took upon himself the form of a human. But he is God. And as such, right now, there is an immeasurable gulf between who we are as humans and the holiness that we have and the holiness of God. There, there is an immeasurable gulf. There is nothing that we can do to bridge that ourselves. There's no way that we, that we can bridge that. It would have to be initiated and built by him. You know, it's, we crossed some of these bridges in West Virginia yesterday that I could not see the chasm, the bottom of the chasm. That's how deep they were. You know what? And if someone asked me to build a bridge across that, I would have no clue where to start. Because that's, I, that's not how I've been trained. I don't know how to do it. But it would be by far, far 
easier for me to take the knowledge that I have and try to build that bridge and make it safe for us to drive across than it would be for us to somehow bridge the gap between the righteousness that is in us and ourselves and the holiness of God. God is the only one that can bridge that. And it is he that has, has initiated this. I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. We cannot bridge it because he is forever pure and we are impure from our birth. He is perfectly righteous and we are unrighteous. He is holy and we are unholy. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6. I'd like to read a few, few verses there. Very familiar passage, but Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood two seraphim, each one with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Do you get this picture? A, a, an incredibly large temple. And God sitting on his throne and says that the train of his robe, in other words, like his glory filled the temple. And these seraphim were there, and they didn't just stand there and say, whoa, that's holy. No. There was such an awe that came over them. I mean, these were, these were beings that were in the presence of God at all times, but even they were so in awe of God's glory that they cover their face with their wings. They cover their feet and to shield them from the incredible glory of God. And they're saying, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. Think about that for some time as you're out walking around. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. Do we even see it? Were Isaiah's eyes just open that he could see God's glory in such a real way around him? And it says the doorpost shook with the sound of the, of the seraphims, the angels' voices. Now, I don't know if you've been at some places where there is music or there is something so loud you can feel the vibration. We were next door to a place where you could, you could feel it in the air. Last where we stayed on this trip, the, the people who were living right next door to us, they had the music, it was so loud, and all I could hear was just the vibrations. You could hear the windows buzzing. You know what? There was no amplification needed for these angels. There was such a, a belief and a, um, and a volume expressing the holiness of God. It says the building was filled with smoke. Why was that? In, in um, verse 4 there, it says the, the building was filled with smoke. I have an idea, but I'm not going to take time for that now. But think about that. I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say afterwards. 
Isaiah knew that to be in the presence of God meant that any impurity, any impurity in the presence of God meant death. And do you hear Isaiah saying, woe is me. I mean, he realizes he sees God's glory. There's nothing left for me but to die. He's, and be, and he, does, he does a couple things in, in that. He comes, to, he comes to the ownership of his own sin. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He owns his own sin. He also owns the sin of the people that are around him. When, when we come face to face with the holiness of God, I think it will bring to a realization the depravity of our own hearts. And it will show us the impurities, the imperfections of our own lives. That is what the holiness, that's what the, the view of God does for us. And so and here we have this picture of the holiness of God and the impurity of man, the waywardness of our own lives. And there's nothing that we can do to erase that gulf. There is a great gap that separates us. We need a bridge. And that comes to the next one, is Jesus as our Savior. We needed a Savior. We need a bridge to span that gap. And can you see Jesus? He's in that glory of heaven that Isaiah saw. He's there. He dwells in the midst of that glory. And he gets up. And he goes over. And he takes off that glory. And he takes off that that majesty, he lays aside the rights to be worshipped, rightfully worshipped in that setting. He lays it aside. He lays aside his power to speak those worlds into existence. He lays that all aside. And he becomes a man. And not even a good-looking man. But a plain, nondescript man that Isaiah says, there's nothing that we would be desirable of him. And not just a man, but a poor man. How many of us have really have a desire to be poor? But a poor, unsought-for child that the ruler of men was going to try and destroy. Can you picture God doing that? You know, he was willing to give up his safety and he was totally dependent on a man and a woman and the dreams that God gave them. He was vulnerable. He made himself vulnerable and he lived in virtual obscurity for most of his life. Can you see him walking the roads of the earth that he created? You know, having compassion on those who were hurting, healing those with diseases. Loving those who he knew would eventually betray him. Think about that for a minute. He knew that and he still did that. Do you see him so lonely for the the fellowship that he had with his father back when he was up there that he would go out at the end of the day when he was so tired, he was so exhausted from all the people that he would go out at the end of the day instead of going to sleep, he'd go out there in the mountains and he'd pray to his father. Why? Because he wanted so much that fellowship with his father. Do you see him longing for that? Do you see him facing the feelings of misunderstanding, being maligned and and being called son of the devil, the son of his enemy? Do you feel what he felt if you had to go through that situation? And yet he still walked on. He was the friend of sinners. 
He was willing to love them even when they were unlovable. And he walked on as their friend knowing the price he was going to have to pay for their salvation. He knew the bridge was, he knew he had to build this bridge. And he knew what the cost was. Can you see him in the garden? You know, he created our bodies. He knows how our nerve endings work. He knows the pain that they would feel. He knew better than any of us do what was coming. And the agony of knowing that and knowing the brutal death that was coming, it it, it made him sweat as it was drops of blood, knowing what's ahead. But still, he submitted to his father's will. Still, even in the midst of knowing that, he said, God, Father, if there's any way, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he allowed his creation, the hands that he created, to put him to death. In the most brutal and barbaric way, so that he could bridge that gap and that gulf that separate us. He redeemed us from the price of sin, which is death. And he made available to us something we could never have had otherwise. A personal relationship with him and his father. You know, there is no gulf of separation anymore. There doesn't need to be. For many people, there still is. But there doesn't need to be. That bridge has been made. The last picture... No. Next picture is Jesus, the law of our Redeemer. For the sake of time, I'm going to brush over this quickly. You know, we were created to be God's children. God created us to have fellowship with him. We became enslaved to the laws of sin, and we can never pay our way free. But Christ, in 1 Peter 3.18, But Christ has once suffered for sins, the just, he, the just, for our unjustness, us the unjust, that he might bring, bring us to God. There we have that bridge of that gap. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You know, sin can no longer hold its power over you. Sin does not have to have you in his, in, his, um, in his clutches. We can be free from that. We don't have to be in bondage to that anymore. And, and as our Redeemer, he has given us hope for the future. And, and I love this picture. You know, if you were a disciple of Christ on crucifixion day, what would you have felt? Was this a really good day? No. This was the worst possible day that you, could, that you could imagine. I mean, you put all the black days together in history in the past, and they would not mate up to this blackest day. We as creation have killed the Son of God. But God is our Redeemer, and he's able to even take those darkest days. And as we look back through history, God took that darkest, blackest day, and it is the brightest spot in all of history. God is able to do that even with the blackest, darkest days we have today because he did it there. 
And Jesus promised that he will return, and when he does, he will wipe every tear. The hurts and the, and the things that we face today, God said he will wipe that away if we're willing to give that to him. And the last picture I'd like to give you is Jesus, the returning bridegroom. And I don't know your congregation, um, but I imagine there's some couples here that are more recently married than others. Um, you watch a young couple who's courting and when they're dating. And as they plan their wedding day, as in you, those of you who are married, we can kind of remember that. It might be back there farther for some of us than others. But I think we could all remember that. You know, just as we, as we were planning our wedding day, there was a lot of thought, there was a lot of planning, but there was a lot of anticipation for that day. I don't think any of us who are married would have gotten to the day before the wedding and said, hey, you know what, this is so fun being engaged. Let's just stay engaged for the next few months. That's unheard of. There's anticipation for the marriage, for the wedding day. And just as we, as we feel that, so our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, feels the same thing. John 14, verses 1 through 3 says, Let not your heart be troubled in this world. Or you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, in the, in the Jewish, Jesus was speaking to Jews here, and so there's, there was a Jewish tradition of betrothal. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this or not, and maybe this is old hat, but just humor me for a minute. Um, when a Jewish young man wanted to marry a young lady, he would go to his father and he said, Father, girl so-and-so, I would like to have her for my wife. And they would talk about it, and then the father and the young man would go, and they'd go to the young girl's father, young girl's family. And they'd sit down, and they would talk with them. And, and the fathers would, would negotiate a bride price. They'd say, the father of the bride, or the young lady would say, this is how much I am requesting for my daughter. And the father of the young man would look at his son and say, son, are you willing to pay this price for this girl? And if the young man said, yes, I'm willing, then they would bring out a cup and they would um, put some wine into it. And the young man would drink the cup. And, and, and in that drinking, he would be pledging. He said, I'm willing to pay the price for you. And the young lady, she then had a choice. Would she accept the cup or not? If she did, she was committing herself to be engaged or betrothed to that young man. If she refused the cup, the whole deal was off. But if she accepted that cup, the young man, he would then leave with his father. And they would go back to his father's house. And they would, there was oftentimes a courtyard... And around the courtyard would be various homes. You know, first of all, it started with maybe just one or two homes. And then as a young man, he would go home and he'd start building his house around it, on one of the other edges or on the side, just building it. And, okay, guys, 
be honest. In most of us, we might build one room. Okay, let's go. We're ready. I'm ready to go get my bride, Dad. His dad said, no, you're going to need more than just one room. You need a place to cook. You need a place um, for children. You need to build a little more. Okay. And so he works. And he, I mean, if, if, you were, if you knew that when you got done building, you could go get your bride, how energetic would you and I be about this? And this is the picture Jesus Christ is giving. He came to us. He came as a man and he said, you know what, there is a price to pay to have you as my bride. There is a price to take you as my bride to heaven. And he took the cup on the, on the Last Supper and he said, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to pay the price for you. And he took that cup and he paid the price. And now, as he said, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a mansion for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And when I and if I go to prepare a place, you trust me. There's no doubt I'm going to come and take you back to myself. Do you hear the anticipation? Do you hear the longing, the desire there? He is not dawdling. He is not drifting, or he's not just twiddling his thumbs, waiting. He is earnestly. Longing to come again. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, if you will. I'd like to leave this picture with you because this is, of all the other pictures of Christ, we have looking back. But this last picture of Christ is what we're looking forward to. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you ignorant, be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so they also which sleep in Jesus will, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. There we go, we got, there we have the, the pillars shaking. And the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I want to leave you with this last verse here. Wherefore, or therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, I don't know what struggles you face as a congregation or in your own personal life, but our King is coming. He's coming back. He has promised it, and He will return. Does that bring us comfort? Comfort each other. Encourage each other to be ready for the Lord's return. You know, in all of these pictures, we only see a glimpse of who God really is. There's no way I could articulate the depth and the love that Christ has for us. There's no way. But... The day is coming when we will clearly see him face to face.
as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we don't know everything now, but then we will see him face to face. You know, Christ is not just a babe in a manger anymore. He is a powerful, holy God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And how we see him and how we respond to him will determine where we spend eternity.